Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning. Good morning, Vox. How are we doing this morning? Good. Everybody awake? Well, welcome. Welcome to Vox. I know people are still kind of coming in. It's a little bit light, but uh, what we wanted to do was take just a moment uh, because we care about our community and our family. Uh, one of our people that you see here that sings and helps us is Stella. And I want to bring Stella out here for a second. Come on, Stella. I know you're hiding back there. Come on. Come on. Today is, she is so shy. Come on. <laughs> you sing in front of everybody. Come on. Uh, Stella's been with us for a long time. How long have you been at Vox, Stella? I think a year and a half. A year and a half. And you've been serving and helping out and being a part of the worship team. And we're so grateful for you. And it's also your birthday. Yes. Yes. Awesome. And we have a little gift for you. Thank you. Uh, can we sing happy birthday to Stella? What? Yeah? Okay. Yes. Because we want you to be awkward for the next 30 seconds. <laughs> Ready? One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Stella. Happy birthday to you. Thank you, Stella. Thank you so much, Stella. Yep. See how awkward that was that we sang for you? Uh, so it's good to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pa- teaching pastors here. I'm grateful for the opportunity and the space to be able to teach and, and teach in a unique way here at Vox, which is really about space. Like the whole community gathers and creates space for people in their journey, um, wherever they're at. Um, we believe fundamentally that as people walk out this journey of faith and what it means to believe that we have questions and uh, we all doubt at different times and some of us are skeptical and that's okay. And we want to be a place that processes that and is okay with that. And so that's kind of a little bit about our community, you'll notice that we do things a little bit differently. Um, part of that is because we believe that first and foremost, we're here to love and serve the world, not stand in judgment of it. Um, and I actually, it was interesting, recently I've been reading a lot of like threads between um, atheists and anti or ex-Christians, and uh, I'm shocked at the amount of hurt that has happened to people because of the church and because of the way that it's held itself for so long. And so part of me is like, wow, I mean, I, I, I'm grateful that we get to be a part of a community that creates space for questions and helps people walk and navigate through that and says it's okay. And so uh, that's a little bit about our community. In fact, uh, one of the questions we have that I want to read to you, um, I honestly don't have an answer for it today. Um, It was presented to me and I thought, wow, that's a huge question. Uh, And just being real honest, I don't have an answer for it yet. But the question is this, uh, please explain how God can say not to kill in Exodus 20 and shortly thereafter tells the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child. That's actually in the Bible. Um, And so when I heard that question, I thought, oh my gosh, Uh, that's a deep, deep question, a deep theological question, one that I don't have an answer for currently. Um, And so I want to take just a week and kind of look that over and come up with some thoughts for you. And again, like this isn't us having the answers. This is about us engaging the conversation saying, here's a perspective that we might have on it. Here's one way to think about this thing. And so I will come back. That's my promise to you. I'll come back next week and I'll have uh, an answer for you or at least something for you on that topic. So if you have questions throughout the service or throughout what we're doing, feel free to submit those. We have a text number, um, text uh, your questions there. 
there. We'll get them and try to answer them as, uh, as quickly as we can. So a couple quick announcements before we get into the service. Um, next week, we're going to have, if you have a, a child who's in our, our ministries, uh, it, go ahead and have them dress up in their Halloween costumes. We think that'll be fun. So we'll do like a little trick-or-treat Halloween thing. So if you have kids, you want to bring them, they can wear their Halloween costume. Uh, the deal was, if, that, if I made the announcement, I have to wear a Halloween costume. So we'll see. Uh, maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that's really it. Um, we don't have much after that. Uh, we The way that we do service is uh, a little bit different. You might be used to having worship up front and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes we do that. Uh, but we're going to have some teaching. You're going to hear, hear Will, Will teach. We'll have a couple songs and then we'll do communion together, which is the focal point of why we gather. And then we'll worship some more. So uh, with that, uh, I want to bring out Will, who's going to teach this morning. So please welcome Will. Sweet. All right. Good morning, everybody. Wow, it's extra dark today. I can't see anything. But I know you're out there. I can hear you, so it's good. Welcome to Vox. You guys having a good week? Yeah, did anyone experience the crazy winds early, like Monday, I think it was, Sunday night? Any of you guys? Yeah, our power was out for a day and a half, so it was crazy. Crazy winds going on. Um, Oh, now I can see you. Hey, guys. I think we just faded the lights back up. Well, welcome again to Vox. Uh, This morning, we are going to look at a pattern in the book of Acts. We've been in a series, obviously, and it's a pattern that's shown up uh, all throughout the book, but in chapter 12, where we are today, it comes into kind of sharp focus. And so here's the pattern. It's that wherever the kingdom of God goes, there's opposition. Wherever the kingdom of God goes, there's opposition and there's conflict. And so the book of Acts is a story about the clashing of kingdoms, about how the kingdom of God interacts with the kingdom of the world and there's this conflict and we've seen it already. Again, there's been traces of it in the death of Stephen uh, who was killed for his allegiance to Jesus. And then we also saw it in the life of Saul or Paul as he actually goes and he's seeking to kill Christians. Uh, we see the opposition there. Um, but here in chapter 12, where we're gonna be today, this absolutely just intensifies to a whole new level. And this isn't just a first century thing that happened in the book of Acts. This is actually something that's a 21st century issue as well, which is this. As a follower of Jesus, what do we do? How are we supposed to respond when there's hostility leveled against us? How do we respond when labels are attached to us or opinions are given about us simply because we claim to be followers of of him? And so how we respond to that hostility is everything because we live in a world of Twitter battles, of political tribes, Uh, where faith is sometimes caricatured as a joke or rejected by the academic world. And so how we react matters so much. And here's what's fascinating is in Jesus's time, all the Jewish parties had a specific way that they dealt with this conflict between the kingdom of God and, and the kingdom of the world. So the Pharisees said, okay, God's kingdom wins through our obedience to the law. We're going to live so righteously that 
his kingdom will be represented and will be victorious. Then you have a group called the Essenes, who uh, sometimes we call the Qumran community who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. Their whole thing was, we're gonna remove ourselves from society and we're gonna just isolate from the kingdom of the world and live in holiness in God's kingdom. That was their response. Uh, then you have the Sadducees who politicized the kingdom of God and they said, we'll just blend God's kingdom with Caesar's kingdom and we'll live the, boast of be- or live the best of both worlds. And then you have the Zealots who said, God's kingdom is going to come no matter what others want or don't want. We're gonna force it upon people through violent revolution. And one of Jesus' own disciples was a zealot, which is fascinating to consider. Here's the problem, though, with all of those views. Jesus brought a kingdom that has a standard higher than our obedience can ever sustain. Sorry, Pharisees. He didn't avoid the riffraff, but he actually lived among them. So sorry, Essenes. Jesus refused to be boxed in by any political tribe. Sorry, Sadducees. And instead of leading through violent revolution, Jesus led through the way of peace. Sorry, zealots. And so when you look at every political party in Jesus' day, they had false ideas about how to handle this conflict with the kingdom of the world. Where do we get it wrong? What are the ways that we react to the conflict we encounter as a follower of Jesus? Where do we go south? Where do we miss it? I'm gonna just give us two quickly. The first one is something called apocalyptic paranoia. And this is a a way that Christians sometimes respond when they encounter hostility because of their faith or their beliefs or their allegiance to Jesus is it's end of the world syndrome. So the world is so bad that it's in a, a lot of ways like the Essenes, so we just have to get out, we have to isolate, we have to escape. And there's actually an article in the New York Times by writer David Brooks that addresses this sort of mentality, this reaction. It's called the siege mentality problem. And if you've been a part of the Vox story for any amount of time, you have probably heard or seen this article. But let me just read a a quick section of it because he says it so well. He says this, the siege mentality starts with a sense of collective victimhood. It's not just that our group has opponents, the whole culture or the whole world is irredeemably hostile. From this flows a deep sense of pessimism. Things are bad now. Our enemies are growing stronger and things are about to get worse. The world our children will inherit will be horrific. The siege mentality floats on apocalyptic fear. The odd thing is, is that the siege mentality feels kind of good to the people who grab onto it. It gives its proponents a straightforward way to interpret the world. The noble us versus the powerful them. It gives them a clear sense of group membership and a clear social identity. But most of all, it gives people a narrative to express their own superiority. We may be losing, but at least we are the holy remnant. We have the innocence of victimhood. We are martyrs in a spiteful world. That's apocalyptic paranoia. We hear Jesus' command to love our enemies and we get the enemy part, but we forget the love part. And that's a temptation for Christians today when we encounter hostility. Okay, here's the second sort of false response. Something called progressive denial. 
And this is for those of us who are weary of just the back and forth, weary of Christians handling things poorly, or maybe weary of the way Christianity is attacked. And so the impulse is just to deny that there is any conflict, to deny that there are any differences of opinion, to sort of blend in as as much as possible, and to say, you know what? We all believe the same stuff. It's not a big deal. And this is progressive denial. And both, both miss it. But just quickly, I want to read you one more thing. I encountered this book this week. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's by author Rosaria Butterfield. Amazing name. And um, she actually summarizes both of these bad reactions when we do encounter this clashing of kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. What do we do? And specifically here, what shouldn't we do? So this is really just a summary of everything I've said. So she takes them in the same order. This first one is essentially about the apocalyptic paranoia. She says, one option is to build the walls higher, to declare more vociferously that our homes are our castles. And since the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we best get inside, thank God for the moat and draw up the bridge. Doing so practices war on this world, but not the kind of spiritual warfare that drives out darkness and brings in the kindness of the gospel. Strategic wall building serves only to condemn the world and the people in it. This kind of war betrays our faith as hollow and powerless. And then secondly, she talks about uh, the other reaction. And she says this, our other option is to despise the blood of Christ and reinvent a Christianity that fits nicely on the coexist bumper sticker. Avoiding the disgrace and shame of the cross for a respectable religion that bows to the idols of our day, consumerism and sexual autonomy. This manipulation strategy relies on using biblical words in anti-biblical ways. It shares with biblical Christianity the same vocabulary, but not the same dictionary. This option is equally dreadful and prevalent. See, the first reaction sacrifices love to the world by removing ourselves from it. And the second reaction sacrifices truth and speaking words that Jesus endorsed because we're afraid of the conflict that will result. How good is that? How important are those reminders? How, how tempted are you by either one of those options? And so, Acts won't let us sacrifice either of those things. It pushes this tension in our face and it tells us as a narrative to live in this world for Jesus will bring opposition. But in the midst of that conflict, it's actually possible to honor Jesus, to love him, and to love other people. And in confusing times like ours, we need that kind of guidance. And so Acts chapter 12, as we dive into this, I think there's four reminders for us as we come in conflict, as we experience hostility for the name of Jesus. And here are the four reminders. There's more than four, but we have time for four. So... Number one, the certainty of sacrifice, the preciousness of prayer, the sovereignty of God, and the weakness of death. The certainty of sacrifice, the preciousness of prayer, the sovereignty of God, and the weakness of death. So let's jump in. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. 
It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So right here from the start, what we see is the the kingdom of the world as it comes in conflict with God's kingdom and his people doesn't just want to sort of uh, sideline people, followers of, of the way or of Jesus, but it wants to crush them. And right here from the beginning, this antagonist appears in the chapter, Herod. And really this is history repeating itself because already in the New Testament, the Herodian dynasty, there are a bunch of Herods that ruled in Israel. They have been wreaking havoc on the way of Jesus from the beginning. So let me quickly just refresh us on who these Herods are. There's a couple of them. First is Herod the Great. So this is the one that ruled when Jesus was born. And when he comes to find out that the Jewish Messiah is to be born, what does he do? He slaughters the the baby boys in Bethlehem. Then you have uh, Herod Antipas. This is the one who lived in Jesus's adult life, who Jesus came before during his trial. This is the man that had John the Baptist beheaded because he made some crummy deal at a dinner party he threw. And now here in Acts chapter 12, this is Herod Agrippa I. What a family legacy, right? You have these Herods just violent, paranoid, speaking of paranoia. So here in Acts chapter 12, Herod does two things. He throws uh, Peter in prison and he has James killed. And right from the start here, okay, here's our first reminder is that to follow Jesus means there is going to be opposition. Some of us run from that. In fact, some of us like the Essenes or maybe even the Pharisees, we claim that we build walls of separation because we wanna stay holy, because we wanna honor Jesus and we wanna stay pure, but really those walls are just cushions because we don't wanna face the fight. We don't wanna, we don't wanna have tension. But Luke tells us through this story, no, there is going to be tension. There are Herods in this world and you need to be aware of it. You need to be prepared for it. You don't need to fear it. And that might seem weird because Herod has a strong hand here. And I wanna slow us down for a second and look more closely at James here because he gets maybe a verse or two. It says that Herod killed him, but let's take a step back and let's think for a second of what has just happened. Let's let it sink in a little bit. Who is James? So he's one of the original 12 disciples and he was part of what we call the inner circle, right? There were three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were closest to Jesus. You see that in the gospels. And Jesus would take them on these special occasions, just those three, James is one of them. And uh, we first encounter James at the Sea of Galilee. He's fishing with his brother John and and Jesus finds them and says those famous words, come and follow me. And as James dropped his fishing nets that day to follow his teacher, could he ever have imagined where this path would lead him? 
that one day he would literally be under the sword of a political tyrant named Herod. But it all started back to that day when he dropped his nets and left everything to follow him. Okay, James has had a nickname. Do you guys remember it? Anybody? Have I put you to sleep already? Him, there it is, yes. Him and his brother were named Sons of Thunder. They were hard-headed, they were passionate, they were intense. There's a story in, in the Gospels where a Samaritan village rejects Jesus and, and won't let them pass through, and so James and John go to Jesus and they say, hey, can we call down fire? Can we consume this town? And Jesus says, boys, bring it down a notch. Okay, y'all need to chill a bit. He says, no, but, but this is James. This is who he is. And what's beautiful is the more time he spends with Jesus, his life is, is transformed. His name literally means the supplanter or the one who overthrows. And his desire as part of Jesus' kingdom was to overthrow the darkness of the kingdom of the world. And that never changed, but his methods did. And so instead of, later in his life, instead of calling down fire on a, a village to overthrow the kingdom of the world, James learned to fight his battles on his knees in prayer. And church tradition had another nickname for him, and it was Camel Knees. <laughs> How's that for a nickname? <laughs> Camel Knees. Because church, early church writers say that he spent so much time in prayer that his knees became calloused and almost disfigured. And you can see the transformation in his life as he followed a savior who had scars covering every inch of his body from a crucifixion. The least he could do was scrape up his knees a little bit. And he learned to fight on his knees. And within just the snap of a finger, a nod of the head, Herod kills him. He's gone. He's dead. We gotta feel that. We have to feel how the, how the church must have just wept and mourned as one of Jesus' closest companions is wiped out for the political agenda of a narcissistic king. We have to feel that. And friends, we are here because of James. I don't know if he died on his knees or, or what his posture was, but as the sword fell, the gospel went forward and we are here because of him. And this is why the apocalypse the apocalyptic fear approach of isolating ourselves or denying that there is conflict just isn't an option for us because it betrays the blood and the life of all those that have gone before that were willing to go all the way to the end, to death, to say, Jesus is life. So church, we have to stand strong in the midst of this conflict. There will be sacrifice. So as we keep looking through this, um, and as I think about James, I'm reminded of the words of Jim Elliott, who is a well-known missionary who also gave his life in the jungles of Ecuador and was speared through the chest by a native tribe there. And this was his prayer. He said, Lord, give me firmness without hardness, steadfastness without dogmatism, love without weakness. And there are times when it will hurt to follow Jesus. Are you willing? Are you willing to take criticism? 
Are you willing to have labels put on you, no matter how loving you are, put on you simply because you represent Jesus? Are you willing to loosen the reins of your your reputation and, and realize that it's not completely in your control? Are you willing to be looked down on as anti intellectual because you take the supernatural seriously? There are people facing death all around the world for the name of Jesus, but in our context, our battle is more our pride and our reputations. Are you willing to to sacrifice those things? And it's hard in in the midst of being questioned, in the midst of being sort of poked and prodded by the world around us. Sometimes we ask God, where are you? Where's the power of your kingdom? Okay, so the the news of James' death reaches the church. Look how they respond. Verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So here's our second reminder, the preciousness of prayer. It says that in their helplessness, in their weakness, the church cries out. They know James is dead. Now Peter's in prison They're expecting him to be executed as well. And so it says they pray earnestly. And that word earnestly shows up when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane just hours before his own arrest and then later crucifixion. And this is a gut-wrenching, I have nothing left, sweating drops of blood type of prayer. And what this shows us is that in the trenches of life's pain, Jesus either becomes a lifeline or a cliche. Jesus is the one that you cry out to with everything you have, who you cling to, or he's the one that you walk away from looking for security elsewhere. But in the conflict that is certain to come as followers of Jesus, prayer is so precious. And uh, John Stott, who's a a writer and scholar who's no longer with us, he summarizes this situation that the church was facing so well. So here's what he says. What could the little community of Jesus and its powerlessness do against the armed might of Rome? Here then were two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess." The visible kings of this world appear powerful and they do have power, they do have authority. But I love what he says. Sometimes the only power we possess is to cry out to Jesus, our king, and say, I don't get it. This hurts, this is terrifying, but you are all I have. And that's what the church does here. They cling to their king. Which begs the question, who is really in control here? It seems to be Herod. But Luke is weaving this theme through this chapter. So here's our third reminder. God is sovereign. And God's sovereignty, all that means is that he is unquestionably, invariably, unwaveringly in control of all things. God has complete control over all things. And Luke's about to show us that. So let's keep reading in verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. 
Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. So this whole story is really a jailbreak at the final hour. It says, the first part of that was that Peter was awaiting trial, and scholars are unanimous on this. This trial was rigged. Just like James was killed, okay, it even says when Herod saw the Jews were pleased by that, he then took Peter into custody. So the idea is by publicly executing Peter the next day, Herod gets to gain support and further his ego and his purposes, and he can't today though because it's Passover. He's trying to win the Jews over and he knows they'll be offended if he kills Peter during the the, the Passover. So he has to wait to the next day and it's in that little window of time that, that God chooses to act. And so God sends an angel to rescue him. And immediately, okay, our modern sort of warning lights go on. Our skepticism maybe for some of us starts kind of welling up and we're like, really an angel? That's so outside of my experience. That's so outside of anything that I think about from from day to day. And here's sort of uh, the bottom line with angels. Jesus had room in his worldview for angels, do you? Jesus believed they were real, talked about them. Do you believe the same? Angel, the word literally just means messenger. And so throughout the Bible, you see them show up and they have messages for people. They, they serve God. Here one comes and, and busts Peter out of prison. But let me take you quickly to something Jesus said about angels. Fascinating statement. So it was, uh, ironically, Peter is here again on the scene and it's right as Jesus is becoming uh, arrested and Peter takes out his sword, starts slashing the place up cuts off a guy's ear and this is what Jesus says to him. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So not only did Jesus believe in angels, but he he claims that they are at his beck and call, that they serve him. Not just that they're there, but that they uh, obey him. And then what else does the angel do? It, it strikes Peter uh, on his side. The angel walks along the street with him. This is a physical being, at least taking a physical form here. And scripture also tells us about this. This is seriously mind-blowing stuff, but here's a verse from Hebrews that talks about this. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. 
and some of you are thinking, this is so weird. You're right, it is. But it's what Jesus believes. I want to tell you a quick story and then we'll move on. The point of the passage is not the existence of angels, but it's such a stumbling block for modern minds. We, we had to spend some time here, but uh, I'm not afraid to get weird with you guys, frankly. And so let me share a quick story. I had a professor who I deeply, deeply respect. And one day in class, he was telling us a bit about his life. And he served in the Vietnam War. So he gets over there. He was deeply involved in what he called psychedelic drugs, child of the 60s. He was a heavy, heavy drinker. And during the war, he absolutely just hollowed out his soul, killed dozens of people in combat. And one night, he's laying there uh, on the jungle floor, staring up into the stars, and he just has this moment of fear that seizes him. And for whatever reason, it, it strikes him in this moment that death is real and that at any moment his life can just be snatched from him and that it's all outside of his control. And he has this moment, he doesn't act on it, but he, he remembers in his mind things he'd heard about Jesus but it's sort of just a flash point in his head and then he, he abandons it, but it plants this seed in his life. So he finishes his, his time in Vietnam and he comes back to the US. And one day he's driving down Pacific Coast Highway here in California and on the side of the road he sees a hitchhiker. So he stops, they start talking and he agrees to take this guy as far as he can towards his destination. So he gets out of the car to help this guy sort of put his things in and shuffle things around. And as they're doing this, he hears this hitchhiker say to him, and I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was something like, the man says to him, Jesus wants you in his kingdom. So my professor turns around and the guy's gone. This remote stretch of PCH, matter of seconds, the guy's disappeared, gone. And in this moment, my professor realizes that he had just encountered an angel. In this moment, this message that had come to him right then out of the middle of nowhere was part of his turning point. There were a lot of little moments, but that was one of the ones that got his attention. Yeah, you think, right? That was one of those moments. And we don't know a ton about angels, but suffice to say, Every single one of us at some point or another has probably benefited from what they do and from who they are. Completely oblivious to the fact. Hebrew says, you have eaten with angels, they have been in your house and you didn't even know it. Jesus himself says, at the command of my voice, legions, thousands of angels do whatever I ask. And they're part of God's plan and his love for us that he would send one to a stoned professor to tell him about his love. Who knows where we've encountered them? Who knows what that's looked like? And in Peter's case, he encounters this angel and God's sovereignty, God's control starts becoming more clear. And notice what Peter was doing the night he was on death row, thinking the next day he's going to die. He's asleep. Chained up, surrounded by soldiers, he is sleeping he feels peace. He's okay. What gives someone that kind of courage? He didn't know the angel was coming. 
I mean, this really challenges us. We live in gated communities. We have airbags to protect us. We have medication that prolongs our life. We have security alarm systems, and we are plagued with anxiety as a culture. The last thing we feel is safe, and here's a guy who is chained on death row catching a couple hours of sleep before the hammer falls. That's why we cling to God's sovereignty even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's dark, when darkness looms overhead, when we don't have answers, when answers flee from us and we can't see through the haze of this life, God's sovereignty is an anchor. Doesn't matter what it is, chains in a prison, cancer, heartache, persecution, God is in control. And I love the summary that when Peter sort of comes to and realizes, oh, this wasn't a dream, this was real life, he says, I realize without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. You see, Herod thought he had control. Herod could hold on all he wanted to the things of the world. He could hold on to his kingdom, he could hold on to his power, but in the end, it's like a vapor through his hands. Only the creator and the author of all things controls all things. And there's been a thousand Herods in this world and their kingdoms have come and they have crumbled. There is only one kingdom that has survived all of human history and that is God's kingdom. And that's what Luke wants us to see. Even when the chips are down, God is in absolute control. And you can look at this story Uh, And you can see that, you can see God's control. Um, But look really quickly, uh, one more piece before we get to where I was just about to go. Uh, We get the end of Herod's story as well. And so look in verse 21. It says this, on the appointed day, Herod wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. And then verse 24, here's probably the most powerful statement of God's sovereignty in the whole chapter. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. The sword of Herod couldn't stop the message of Jesus. His tyranny couldn't thwart the purposes of God. And what's fascinating is there's an ancient Jewish historian named Josephus. Okay, this is not in the Bible. This is just an ancient writer who tells this same story of Herod's death. And so we can compare the two accounts. And this created quite a stir in the ancient world. Josephus gives us a couple other details. He tells us that Herod's robes were silver and gleaming in the sun. And when he stood before the people, they started praising him as a God. And when Herod accepted that worship, Josephus tells us that these excruciating stomach pains seized him. He had to be carried out in front of everyone where he died a couple of days later. And that's what Luke means by eaten by worms. We don't know if it was some sort of parasite, if it was a bowel issue, some kind of other disease. We have no idea. But there's this ancient writer who tells the same story and it parallels Luke's with perfect accuracy. It's fascinating when you put this all together. And all of this is making clear there's only one king who reigns and it's not Herod. There's only one kingdom that lasts And it's the kingdom of the sovereign God who's in control of all things.
So now, as we look at this story and, and you see, you know, you might look at this and say, okay, everything's tied up neatly with a bow, right? The antagonist dies this brutal death and everything works out. Peter gets taken out of prison. But I want to actually take us circle back to the life of James, right? Peter got out of prison, but James got the sword, And so when we say that God is sovereign and that God is in control, there's some tension there. Are we supposed to just push James aside and say, yeah, that sucked for him, but you know what? Everyone else was fine. Herod got what he deserved, so it's like payback. Um, Okay. What Luke forces us to balance, though, is this tension is that God's sovereignty does not mean we are immune to pain. Remember that when James died, this was a horrible blow to morale. This was painful for his family and his deepest friends. He really died and it hurt. And when we encounter hostility because of the name of Jesus, it's going to hurt. We're not saying that, that there's no pain and that there's no suffering, there's no cost. Luke shows us that there is an incredible cost, but he gets us if we're, if we're watching carefully to look beneath the surface. Because at face value, what do you see in the life of James? You see the sword falling, you see blood spilling, and you see a life that's ended. And Herod deals the most devastating blow he has in his arsenal, which is death. But here's what Herod did not know. He did not know that death holds no power for those in God's kingdom. Why? Because our king walked into death himself, he tore it to pieces, he rose from the dead, and what this means for us and all who are a part of his kingdom is that death is just like a nice night's sleep. It's waking up to your king. And at the moment that the sword fell on James, the hand of Jesus pulled him up out of death and he came to understand more clearly than ever before the beauty and the power of the king that he had followed in his earthly life. And so James is not the victim here. This is our last reminder. In the kingdom of God, death is weak. Death is weak. The greatest enemy of humanity, the the greatest thing that is feared, death itself cannot stop Jesus, his kingdom, or those who belong to it. Let me show you Acts 2. This is Peter speaking, remember Pentecost, where there's thousands of people, and listen to what Peter says about Jesus. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And if it's impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus, it's impossible for death to hold those who are in his name. It's impossible for death to hold you down. Paul says many of the same things in Romans 8. He he writes these words. Let's go to the next one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or, don't miss this, sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is why we love our enemies, even in the midst of conflict, is because we have the advantage. They can kill us and our hope is not dislodged. So to isolate ourselves, the conflict is real. Make no mistake. We don't deny it. We don't look the other way. It's going to hurt. It's going to be unfair at times. It's going to tear us up emotionally, maybe even physically. But we don't separate from the world because they need Jesus like we need Jesus. We don't isolate because to do so is to withhold the incredible love of Jesus from them. And we also don't compromise the truth of who Jesus is. Why would we ever want to hold back those beautiful things we just read? Why would we want to downplay the fact that those who are in Jesus can never be taken away? There's no darkness, there's no hurt, there's no persecution, there's no sickness that can ever snatch you out of his hand. To water down our message is to water down hope. And so neither are an option for us. So guess what? We get to sit in the tension of the in-between that it's going to hurt and that we will love a world that will sometimes trample right over us. And we're called to keep going. We're called to face whatever comes. If it's the sword, fine. If it's prison, fine. If it's a hit to our reputation, fine. He's with you. You don't walk any step of that alone. I don't walk any step of that by myself. So when you're in those moments, when you're feeling the reality of the clash of kingdoms, the one that you live and represent, and the many kingdoms that are out there, cling to Jesus in prayer. Remember that he's sovereign, that he's in control, and remember that not even death itself can snatch you from his hand. Church, be faithful to him. May we all be faithful to him when those times come. Because truly, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Jesus, you walked through this world, and the minute, Lord, your tiny human body was born, the kingdoms of the world lurched and contorted and were filled with hate and jealousy and fear when they beheld you. Lord, you represent true power and the undermining of all other powers. And Lord, we've been sold a bill of goods that says to follow you will never hurt, will never mean we walk into danger or slander, that we're never mocked, and that's simply not reality. So God, would we cling to you? Would we not be self-righteous and over-victimize ourselves? Would we not pull away from the world? Lord, would we not, in the words of Rosaria, talk about biblical things with unbiblical meanings? Would we not compromise the truth, Lord, that you are the way, the truth, and the life? 
but Lord, would we be channels of your love and your grace. As we suffer for you, as we're fearless for you, would hard hearts be changed? That's what turned a son of thunder into a son on his knees. And that's what will transform the world. Show us how to love like you do, how to endure suffering like you do. We pray this in your name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace, amen. Thank you guys so much for coming today. It's lovely to see all your beautiful faces and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.